Children can always remain with their parents as well, but we do have classes for the kids up through the fourth grade. So may God bless the children and bless those that teach them as well. Praise God. Let me just ask for God's blessing on us again. Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity that we've had to lift our voices and sing praises unto you. And even as we sang in that song, Father God, let your light shine in this world. We know, Father God, that you have chosen that light to shine through us, through your people, through your church, through the children of Zion. Father God, speak to us even now through your word, I pray. Open our hearts to receive what you have to say to us, Lord, and help us to apply it in our lives. For your praise and for your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Who are we? Who are we? There are various ways we could answer that question, aren't there? We could say, well, we're human beings. Or we could say, we are Americans. Or we could say, we are Californians. But who are we? We who are gathered here together today, we are sinners. Sinners saved by the grace of God through faith in the finished work of Christ. We are all members of the body of Christ, His church. If we are indeed saved by the finished work of Christ. All who have trusted in Christ have been made members of the body of Christ. And we are also fellow workers or co-laborers with Christ in being His light in this world, in being His hands extended, in being His messengers, and in building His church. And as such, we need to be living our lives as Christ's church. So today will be the third in a series of sermons regarding the church of Jesus Christ. If you've not yet listened to the first two sermons, I pray that you will, and they are available on our website. In the first sermon, we looked at the statement made by Jesus to his disciples found in Matthew 16, 18, where Jesus said, quote, on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus said, I will build my church. In that sermon, we learned that Christ is the foundation of his church. Christ is the builder and owner of his church, and Christ is the victor over all the enemies of his church. And we take great hope in that, don't we? And then in the second sermon, we learned that we, 
the members of his church are called by God to be fellow workers or co-laborers with Christ in building his church. I mean, that is incredible. That, that God has chosen to use you and I. I mean, ordinary people, I don't mean any disrespect by that, but let's face it, folks, we're not the most brilliant in the world, we're not the most wealthy in the world, we're not the most talented in the world, right? In fact, what did we start with? We're sinners, right? But sinners saved by the grace of God, justified by the sacrifice of Christ, and indwelt by the Spirit of Christ, and empowered to be His co-laborers, His co-workers. Amazing. We saw in our, in our text that we looked at, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 9 through 13, that we are told to be careful how we build His church. We are not to be using inferior building materials. And I gave you a list of those inferior building materials that we find in the New Testament. We're not to build the church on the wisdom of men on the commandments of men, on human philosophy, on the elemental principles of this world. We're not to build the church on different doctrine other than what we find in the Word of God. We are not to build the church on irreverent babble or so-called knowledge. We must instead build using the proper God-given materials What are those proper building materials? The public reading of the Word, which we heard today. Sound teaching of the Word. Entrusting in the Word. Rightly handling the Word. Correction and training by the Word. Preaching the Word. And even reproof, rebuke, and exhortation by the Word. So you might say the proper building materials are the Word of God. In every form. We also learn that we will receive a reward for our efforts if we build properly. If we are being true co-laborers with Christ. Now, make no mistake. Christ is the foreman. Okay? He's the owner-builder. We are co-laborers. And today we will focus on how we are to live together as the church that belongs to Christ. And to do so, we're going to focus on our text in Romans 12, verses 3 through 18. There we will see three profound truths. The first is, we are all members of one body, as Pastor Don said earlier. We are all members of one another, and we are all called to be ministers to one another. So if you can, please stand for the reading of a portion of our text. I'm going to read Romans 12, verses 3 through 13. This is God's word to us. 
For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, that's everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. And seek to show hospitality. May God bless the reading of his word to us. You may be seated. In the first three verses of our text, the Apostle Paul is telling us that the church is one body in Christ and that individually we are members of one another. So let's look at those two very important points that come out of this text. First of all, Paul uses the analogy of a human body to help us to understand how we, as distinctly different individuals, are to relate to each other in the church, in the body of Christ. Just as the human body has many different types of cells and many different types of organs, each with their own function, so we who are different are all a part of the same body, the body of Christ. And as such, we have many things in common. And I alluded to a couple of those earlier. First, we're all sinners. Oh, the joy. But we have that in common, don't we? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But by the grace of God and the gift of saving faith from God, We have something else in common. We have been redeemed through faith in the substitutionary death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amen? So we have been saved by Christ. We have been filled by the Spirit of Christ. And we have been baptized into the body of Christ, His church. None of this was our own doing. It was done by him. Remember, every person who is saved through faith in Christ is also added to the church of Christ. And this is absolutely essential. Just as a human organ or cell cannot survive for long detached from a human body, neither can a Christian grow and flourish when separated from the church. 
That's the way God designed it to work. Some of you know that I spent seven years working as a paramedic for a private ambulance company um, years ago. And I can remember a couple of times um, rolling up on a call where a person had severed a finger. And we knew what to do. We could wrap that finger up. We could keep it moist. We could transport him to the hospital, notify them. They could set up surgery and they could reattach that finger. Okay? As long as we got there soon enough and they got the surgery done soon enough, right? Wait too long and what happens? Not good. It's the same thing with the body of Christ. Not one of us is meant to be separated from the body. We're meant to be attached to the body. This is where we were meant to be. This is where we will grow through all the means of grace offered to us here. This is where we we will be continually sanctified, growing in love, in grace, and in knowledge. This is where we will be equipped for the ministry that God calls every one of us to do. Paul wrote a very similar passage to the one we're looking at in his letter to the Corinthians. Let me remind you of a couple of those verses. 1 Corinthians 12, 12 and 13. Paul writes, For just as the body is one and has many members... And all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body. So it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. It could not be any clearer. All true Christians are baptized by Christ into the body of Christ, His church. There are to be no exceptions. All true Christians are to be members of a local church body. We may each be different in many ways, but we have this in common. We are to be members of the one body, His church. And as I said last Sunday morning, the church is nothing less than the embodiment of Christ upon the earth. And that's the way he designed it to be. When the world sees us, they should be seeing him in us because his spirit dwells in us. And he calls us to be billboards, if you will, for his grace, his love. The church is nothing less than the embodiment of Christ upon the earth. And every believer is to be a contributing part of that body. Second truth we see in our text in verse 5 is that we were also told by Paul that we are individually members of one another. So not only are we all members of the one body, we are also members of each other. Now what does that mean? Well, I believe that it describes a totally interdependent relationship within the church, whereby 
Each member of the church is spiritually connected to every other member. Just as every cell in our body is connected to every other cell and dependent upon every other cell in our body. Nobody wants to give up a body part, do they? Not voluntarily. And it's the same with the church. Each one, each member is either contributing to the growth and well-being of the others or is distracting from it. So Paul is describing here an intimate spiritual connection that is to exist between all the members as members one of another. In other words, what I do or fail to do has an impact on all the other members. And you might think, oh, pastor, that can't be possible. How can what I do, especially if I'm doing it, you know, in secret, how can that be having an impact on the rest of the body? It does. There's a spiritual impact because you're part of me and I am part of you. That's what Paul is saying here. Now, I admit, this presents a totally different view than that held by many who casually attend church when they feel like it, or perhaps not at all. The church was never intended by God to be an occasional gathering of individualistic, self-centered people coming to get their needs met. That's not the way God designed the church to be. We were saved to live in other-centered spiritual communion focused upon loving and caring for one another. Because of Christ. That's what Christ did. That's how Christ loves His church. He loves each and every member with a glorious love. And that's what He's calling us to. Listen again to how Paul describes this back in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Look at a few more verses there, starting in verse 14. For the body does not consist of one member, but many. God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as He chose. Let's stop there for a second. If you're here this morning, you know why you're here? Because of God's sovereignty. It was His will for you to be here this morning. If you're a member of this church, you know why you're a member of this church? God's sovereignty. He wanted you to be a member of this church. He brought you to this church. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. And then he goes on in verse 24 to say this. God has so composed the body. Again, who composed it? God did. Who chose us? God did. Who brought us in? God did. 
that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. It's pretty clear, isn't it? We're placed into the body of Christ as members one of another. We are chosen and empowered by God to love one another, to encourage one another, to build up one another, to care for one another. We are not to be looking out for our own needs, but instead for the needs of others. And as we do, all those needs will be met. And all our needs will be met according to the grace of God. This is the way that God designed his church to be. And this is what you and I should desire as well. Since this is God's design for the body of Christ, his church, then you would expect that God would give us instructions as to how we should live in relationship to one another. And guess what? He does. Starting with the rest of our text. Now, again, we're just scratching the surface here brothers and sisters, but nevertheless, it's important to understand what God is calling us to. We are all to minister to one another. Again, if you and I are connected, then I should care about what happens to you. I should care about your spiritual well-being. I should care about how you are walking with the Lord, because it's going to affect me, and vice versa. So in this text, we're given commands as to how we should live. Let me read again verses 6 through 9. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. We're given commands as to how we should live in relationship to one another in the church. Paul begins by telling us that God has given every believer, each and every one of us, a gift or gifts, plural, that we should be using to serve others within the church. We're to be using our God-given gifts to serve others within the church. No gift, talent, or ability is of value if it isn't used. God did not give gifts to his children for them to keep them to themselves. Paul says clearly, let us use them in verse 6. So if God has given us gifts, Paul says, let us use them. We are to use them to minister to others in the church. One part of the body ministering to another part of the body. Unless you think this is just Paul's teaching, let me also remind you what Peter had to say in 1 Peter 4, verses 10 and 11. Peter writes this, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another 
as good stewards of God's varied grace in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Note that. These gifts we've been given were to use in serving one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. We're in the body of Christ because of God's grace. We're empowered by the Holy Spirit because of God's grace. We're given gifts and talents and abilities by God, by His grace. But the purpose is that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. We're not given gifts and talents and abilities to glorify ourselves. But so that we would live to the praise of His glory. Amen? It's all about living lives that bring glory to Christ. This text goes on. It gives us a short list of seven gifts found. The ones I just read. Seven gifts. But this is only one of four texts in the New Testament where spiritual gifts are mentioned. Those gifts mentioned in the New Testament can be divided into three categories. Sign gifts, speaking gifts, and serving gifts. Now, no sign gifts are mentioned in our text. And that's because the sign gifts were those miraculous gifts that authenticated Jesus and then the apostles, authenticated them to be men sent by God. And therefore, those gifts ceased after the death of the apostles. Actually, even before their death, those gifts began to cease. They were no longer needed, no longer necessary. The other gifts are given by God, listen to me, for the express purpose of building up His church. And as we are doing so, we are being co-laborers with Christ. As we use the gifts that we've been given, empowered by the Spirit of Christ who dwells within us. Let me just say two other things right here. Number one, the list of gifts is not exhaustive by any means. And number two, nowhere in the Bible does it say you need to figure out what your gift is before you do anything. News alert, no place in the scriptures is there a spiritual gifts test. Okay? Those are made up by men. Here's what you need to do to find out what your gift is. Serve. Serve. Well, pastor, where do I serve? Wherever you can serve. And you know what? Over time, you will figure out if that's your gift. And if it's not, serve somewhere else. And serve somewhere else. Until you know what? You'll figure it out. By God's grace. Actually, what usually happens is other people tell you. Right? Right? I can't tell you how many people have told me, Oh, Pastor, I have the gift of teaching. Uh, No, you don't. Okay? Usually others can uh, 
can see. So let me just quickly run through these seven that he gives us here. It starts with prophecy, which is speaking forth the word of God, such as biblical preaching. Serving. Serving is every sort of practical help that is given to others. We have a list back there for our upcoming fellowship meal that's two weeks from today. We have a list of people, a sign-up list in the foyer where you could sign up to help in some way. Okay? Setting up, receiving food, cleaning up after the event. Those are areas of serving. Serving. Teaching. That's those who teach at all levels of church ministry. From the toddler class to Sunday school to teaching home fellowship groups. Exhortation. What is that? This encompasses the idea of giving advice, pleading, encouraging, warning, strengthening, and comforting. Giving advice, pleading, encouraging, warning, strengthening, and comforting. Something that every one of us need at one time or another and something that every one of us can give at one time or another. It's that same word that's used in Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 where the writer to the Hebrews writes this, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. That's the same word for exhortation. Encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We all need this. And the only way it can happen is if we assemble together if we gather together whether that's on Sunday morning or whether that's a home fellowship group or whether that's a men's ministry or a women's ministry study when we come together there's the opportunity to encourage one another how about giving giving to help meet the needs of others our brothers and sisters in Christ I believe that's what specifically he's talking about here because it's in reference to the body There are some who have needs. Are you aware of the needs of others? Well, you can't really be aware unless you're spending time with others so that you can know what their needs are. Leading. We all need leaders who are focused on following and glorifying Christ. And leaders should lead with zeal and set an example for others to follow. And then acts of mercy. This is both showing compassion and sympathy and doing what we can to comfort and strengthen that person. And Paul says it should be done cheerfully, not begrudgingly. We should want to be the hands of Christ extended. We have been shown mercy and compassion and grace, and we should extend that to others. So these, along with all the spiritual gifts, are given to us for us to use in ministering to one another in the church. That is the emphasis that Paul places here in verse 6. Again, he says, having gifts that differ 
according to the grace given to us, let us use them. It doesn't say, let us hide them. It doesn't say, let us keep them to ourselves. No, let us use them. We should be gathering together with our brothers and sisters in Christ as often as we can, and we should be looking for opportunities to minister to them and allow them to minister to us. And we do this to glorify Christ, that Christ would be glorified as his church, his body is built up. We are also to be living as a follower of Christ. And Paul goes on in verses 9 through 13 to talk about that. Look at verse 9 with me. He starts off with this. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. And seek to show hospitality. In these few verses, he describes how we should live as those who have experienced God's love and amazing grace towards us in Christ. We should no longer live for ourselves as we did before, but now we should live as those who have been transformed by the power of the Spirit of Christ. We're no longer to live natural lives, but instead We're called to live supernatural lives because we are now spiritually alive in Christ. And we're empowered by His Spirit to live such lives. Paul begins in verse 9 by describing this in terms of our personal behaviors. In verse 9, he mentions three characteristics of supernatural living. First, let love be genuine. Love is the greatest virtue of the Christian life. The Christian life is to be love. And not just any kind of love, but genuine, sincere, agape love. We heard about agape love last Sunday when our brother Brett, excuse me, Rob, preached this type of love which which pastor rob preached about last sunday is unconditional love unselfish love other-centered love it's the type of love that comes from god god is love and he is the source of love and as pastor don mentioned earlier That love is poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. It's poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. 1 John 4.16, we read this, that God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. So we love because God first loved us. And he sent his son to save us and to fill us with his love so that we can love others with that same kind of love. Because we love God, 
we will also love our brothers and sisters in Christ. Because they are his body. When we love them, we're loving him. He goes on to say that we should abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. Abhor, that is a strong word. Let me tell you that. Despise. Avoid. Have nothing to do with what is evil. And note this, both What is evil and what is good here are to be defined by what God says is evil and what God says is good. Hatred of that which God calls evil is an expression of our love for Him. That's right. We should hate the things God hates. Evil is the opposite of God. It's the opposite of holiness and godliness. Evil is the enemy of God, so we are to abhor it, not tolerate it in ourselves or in our presence. The true child of God will not tolerate evil in their life, but will repent of it and instead hold fast or cling on to that which God calls good. As servants of Christ, we're to bind ourselves to those things that God calls good. We cannot allow this world to dictate to us what is evil and what is good. For this world is under the influence and control of Satan. This world and the people of this world are known for calling evil good and good evil. Amen? especially in the state in which we live. Earlier in this same letter, in Romans 2.2, we know this verse. Paul commanded Christians, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And the mind is renewed by the word of God. The Word of God tells us what is good and what is evil. We must put off the world's way of thinking. We must repent and put on the mind of Christ. Put on the mind of God as revealed in His Word. So this deals, verse 9 deals with how we are to live. Paul then expands beyond our personal behaviors to how we live in relationship to others in the church. In verse 10, he commands us to, quote, love one another with brotherly affection. In this verse, Paul uses two compound words in the Greek for love. Love one another translates the Greek word Philadelphia. You're familiar with that word. That word means brotherly love. The love between brothers or the love between sisters, or the the love between very dear friends. Then the phrase, with brotherly affection, translates the Greek word philostorgoi, which means family affection. 
the affection found between loving family members. The affection, for instance, between a parent and their child. So in this context, Paul is telling us that in the body of Christ, in the church, we should love one another as though we were members of the same family. Because we are. Amen? And what a joy. What a joy to be brothers and sisters in Christ. And because we are, we are to be devoted to brotherly love and affection for one another. And you know what? That sets Christians apart from everyone else in the world. And that's exactly the way God intended it to be. Remember what Jesus told his disciples in John 13, 35? He said this, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Because folks, listen to me. Even in families, we don't always see loving relationships. In nuclear families or in physical families, we don't always see loving relationships throughout that family. And so when people come in and they see the love that we have for one another in the body of Christ, that is amazing. That is supernatural. It's not natural. It's supernatural. Jesus says the supreme test is not that we say we love Him, but that His love flows through us to our brothers and sisters in Christ, our church family. Anyone can say they love Jesus. Do they live as though they love Jesus? Everything else on Paul's list of how we will live in relationship to others in the church flows from this starting point. We must be motivated by love, empowered by love, and guided by love to carry out the other requirements of our relationships. It is Christ's love for us that motivates us. It's because Christ has loved us that we're motivated to love others. It's because that love of Christ is poured into us. And then he goes on in verse 10, outdo one another in showing honor. To show honor is not simply to praise, but to show genuine appreciation for one another in the family of God. Verse 11, don't be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Note this, we're called to serve the Lord by serving our brothers and sisters. As I said earlier, <clears throat> when you serve in the church, when you serve your brothers and sisters, you're serving Christ himself. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. We're called to serve the Lord by serving one another. And it should be, it should be done with zeal, with enthusiasm to do so. We should see serving others as a great privilege because Jesus told us, whatever we do for the least of these, we have done for him. That's how closely Jesus identifies with his beloved children. 
that any service rendered to them is considered to be service rendered to him. And we are able to do this because of his love for us, because of the power he supplies us through his spirit. And then in verse 12, we're called to rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation. Oh, that's really easy, isn't it? And be constant in prayer. Now listen to me. We know that trials and tribulations are common in this life. And those trials and tribulations will affect our brothers and sisters in the church as well. We heard about a couple of those this morning in our congregational prayer. Trials and tribulations are a part of our journey through this natural world, this fallen world. But confident hope in our Lord empowers patience and prayer in times of tribulation and distress. Together we can rejoice in the hope that we have in Christ. We can encourage one another to be patient and wait upon our Lord. And while we wait, We can call out to Him in prayer, confident that He hears our prayers and will answer them according to His perfect will. And how encouraging it is to pray for one another, to know that others who love us and care about us are praying for us. That's why we have a prayer chain, that's why we have a prayer list. So that when we have those trials and tribulations, we can let our brothers and sisters know and they can pray for us. And it's comforting. It strengthens us, doesn't it? Absolutely. He goes on, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. The church perseveres in part through our helping one another. Listen to me, love is generous. Luke wants us to help. Love contributes to those in need. Contribute here translates koinonio, which means sharing with others what we have, what we have been blessed with by God, sharing it with those in need. We should be motivated by love to share what we have with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And one form of sharing is to show hospitality to others. Blessing them with a meal or a place to stay. Hospitality was essential in the life of the early church, but it's no less an expression of love in our day. We welcome people into our home as an expression of God's love and as our provision, our caring for them. We are called to live out God's love and grace that we have experienced through Christ. He is building His church here. Christ is building His church. And we are called to be co-laborers with Him in that work. We are called to be His hands extended. We are called to be ministers of grace, a shoulder to cry on, a healing hand, a person to pray with, a person who gives. These are just some of the ways that we are called to live as Christ's church.
So in our text today, we've learned that we are all members of one body, the body of Christ. We are all members of one another. We are spiritually interconnected. And we are responsible to minister to one another in love. These are not my ideas. This is how Christ designed His church. And He wants it to be a reflection of His love, His grace, His mercy, and His compassion in this dark world. We're to be a mirror reflecting that to the world around us. And as we live out this calling in relationship to one another, we will bring glory to the name of Christ. And we will live as a shining light in the darkness of this world. That's what we should desire. Amen? They will know we are Christians by our love. Not just love professed, but love demonstrated, love lived out. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you again for this opportunity to be here with our brothers and sisters, to lift our voices and sing your praises, to lift our prayers to you, Father God, for we know that you hear and answer the prayers of your children. And Father God, thank you for each one who is a part of this local expression of the body of Christ. Thank you, Father God, that each one who is here has been brought here by you. Each one has been given gifts and talents and abilities. Each one is to be a vital part of the body. Lord, help us to minister one to another. Help us to love one another. Help us to do so, Father God, not simply because it's beneficial to us, but because it brings you glory. Because it is part of your divine plan for your people. We thank you for the privilege, the honor of being a part of your work here at Christian Family Fellowship. And we give you all the praise and glory for it in Jesus' name. Amen.